Hey, welcome to Gospel Community Sermon Podcast. Thanks for listening in. We hope that uh, you enjoy what you hear and that we handle the word faithfully. We'd invite you, if you have any questions or want to attend a service, to visit www.gcctroy.com. We focus back on Philippians. I wanted to kind of go back through uh, chapters 1 through 3 and just kind of do a little lightning round through it. So kind of bring us back into where we're at and some of the themes of Philippians. And so in chapter 1, you know, Paul is writing. He's writing from prison. Okay, and he's, he's writing back to this church in Philippi, and he's saying things like, you know, we are the partakers in the same gospel. You know, we should be growing in knowledge and discernment. You know, he's seen uh, people, that, even while he's in prison, people are kind of rivalry with him. They're having, uh, preaching the gospel for kind of their own gain and things like that. These, these are people who are preaching the gospel in spite of Paul. And here he's in prison, but still saying the gospel is bigger than he is. And he rejoices in seeing the gospel preached, even if somebody's doing it out of spite or, or something like that. He's, he's happy to see it, right? His condition and where God has him is in a very dark and difficult place, yet he's reaching out and rejoicing in the fact that the gospel is taking root. And so we also see that Paul is calling them to have unity in the spirit. And in chapter two, he calls them to be united in a spirit of humbleness and servanthood, putting others first, considering others greater than themselves, and he calls for them to shine like lights in a crooked and twisted generation, that their conduct is a testimony to the world of the gospel that they trust in. And he's saying that he's sending Epaphroditus, and then later he, wants, he hopes to send Timothy, and he calls out specifically Timothy's conduct. He says that all these other servants working with him are still kind of working for their own gain, They're still kind of thinking about themselves, but Timothy, he's holding above because Timothy is uh, showing that he trusts in this true gospel through his conduct. There's, it's not just that Timothy has trusted in Jesus and now he's, he's saved. It's that Timothy has trusted in Jesus and it's reflected in the way he acts, the way he speaks, the way he teaches that he is just as Paul is following Paul's example. Timothy is pouring himself out as well for the cause of the gospel. And then in chapter 3, Paul calls for them to watch out for false teachers, people who are coming and trying to insert parts of the law back into salvation, who are coming in and trying to uh, get people pulled back into a a different gospel, not the true gospel of Christ, that we have freedom from our sin and death, but that we have to follow certain laws or we could lose our salvation or follow certain laws in order to, to do things correctly, rather than trusting in Christ's work once and for all. And Uh, He recounts his own attempts through the law and through his own righteousness, that he has this great resume as far as 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 a Jew would have, right? That he's tried to keep every law, he's tried to keep his conduct pure, yet it was rubbish in light of the gospel, because Jesus obeyed it all perfectly and fully. And so you'll remember this uh, graphic that we have here, that uh, Jason shared this uh, in a sermon uh, back before we took a break, and Paul, as a theme for this whole book, he's talking about how his mindset, his belief, what he trusts in needs to be calibrated on Jesus Christ. And because of that belief and that mindset being calibrated on Jesus Christ, his conduct will be calibrated on Jesus Christ. You see on the left side of that triangle. And then he's calling for the Philippians to imitate him. So to calibrate their belief and their mindset around Christ 
and to imitate Paul in following in conduct and in listening to Paul's exhortations and what Paul is recommending to them and to have that also calibrated that both are working toward Christ crucified once and for all to take that gospel to the ends of the earth for the Great Commission. And so we know as people, each and every one of us, right, our beliefs are going to guide our conduct. And we all struggle with hypocrisy, right? We're not perfect. We are in the flesh. And there are times when our conduct doesn't match our beliefs. And Paul's calling us not to lose heart, but to continually recalibrate back on Christ. That that hypocrisy, that difference between what we believe and what we have as a mindset and the conduct that gap would close as we go through life and as we go through sanctification, that our conduct would become exactly in line with what we believe in our Lord Jesus Christ. So our main thesis for today is that the gospel directs us to Christ's likeness, even in our disagreements. And we look at Philippians 4, 2 through 9, and we see uh, in verses 2 and 3 that disagreements may happen among God's servants. It's bound to happen, right? We're human. And we see in verses 4 through 6 that God's servants must check themselves, right? We need to go back to the Scripture and understand our own heart. And then third, in verses 7 through 9, we need to recalibrate upon Christ and recalibrate on the teachings of Jesus and the teachings of the apostles. We're going to walk through this today. And so we start out looking at verses 2 and 3, and he says, I entreat Judea and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So Paul understands that disagreements are going to happen among God's people, but he's entreating them, he's encouraging them and spurring them on to, those, to come to agree in the Lord. Now, you know, we don't know what the nature of this disagreement is. It's not, it's not outlined here, but Paul knew, and Paul's audience knew. And it's interesting, you know, it, it must have been something kind of minor, because we know Paul doesn't run away from a theological argument. If this was a theological issue, Paul would address it. And Paul doesn't run away from moral arguments either. When there's immorality, what we see in like 1 Corinthians and stuff like that, he doesn't, he doesn't fail to address that either. He addresses it head on. Like Paul's not afraid to confront. But he knows that the audience knows exactly what's happening here. And it's interesting. Henry Kissinger once said, it's, I think other people have said it in other ways, but he once said that in academia, when he was a professor at Harvard, he said, the fights in academia are so bitter because the stakes are so small. So think about that. The fights are so bitter because the stakes are so small. There are times we can disagree wildly with people and still get along, yet sometimes we disagree on some little thing and it blows the whole relationship apart. And so I'll ask the rhetorical question, how many people decided to go to dinner as a couple and argued in the car on where to go, right? We're all hungry, right? We all want food. We all like a lot of the restaurants down at Miller Lane. Where do you want to go? I don't know. Where do you want to go? I'm fine with anything. I'm fine with anything too. Well, I want to go here. No, I don't like that place, right? And it, right, little things can just blow things up, right? It happens. The stakes are so small and they can get so bitter, 
So again, I think, I think we know that this isn't a, a large-scale thing. It's something small, but think about it like this. Paul's hundreds of miles away and in prison, and he's got to deal with this little argument over here in Philippi, right? So it, it's something that, not theological and not moral, we assume, yet it's made its way all the way to this dude in prison, hundreds of miles away. So it's something that is definitely working at the Church of Philippi toward discord. Now, it's not to say that they're necessarily wrong in, in their, their stances. We recall in Acts 15, right, Paul and Barnabas decided to split and go their separate ways in ministry because they couldn't agree on John Mark and whether to take him or not. And they had an argument, and they went their separate ways. These things are going to happen. And I think we've all had someone we work with or someone in our, our family or something like that where there's been a bitter dispute, where there's times when um, maybe there wasn't a right or wrong, but we see things differently. We have different opinions about politics and culture. We have different opinions about how to spend money or how to parent children. Places where there's going to be room for interpretation, yet we get in a bitter disagreement over it. And that might be something like that that's happening here that's creating these factions. There's always kind of the joke about a church split because they couldn't agree on what color a carpet to install. You know, and, and that's the thing. Sometimes these rivalries happen in a church and it's bitter and it pulls people apart. I grew up in a church where the pews were bright orange and the carpet was green. Maybe there should have been an argument, you know? But the point is, right? But the point is, there is, there's taste and there's preference, right? And there's room for difference there. And so these are the kinds of disagreements, though, that sometimes we, we care the most about it. And what we believe in, if we remember from that graphic, right, what we believe in is going to guide our conduct, and so if we're not calibrated on Jesus, when we're in these little arguments, these petty things, what are we really focused on, right? We're focused on ourselves. What do I think about this? What do I think is right? Why do I, what do I think they should do? I want them to understand me. And we end up not being calibrated on Christ, but calibrated on ourselves. So for those of us in Christ, like Paul has already said in Philippians 2, right? Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility... Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. He puts that word out there, that word conceit. Conceit is excessive pride in oneself. Okay, so excessive pride in oneself. All right, think about that. I want to be right. I know better than they do. I want to put them in their place. I want them to understand me. I want them to acknowledge my point of view. So based on Paul's wording, so there's some kind of factions going on, causing stress among the people of God and distracting them from their true mission. And so he's talking to them and saying they need to come to agreement, agreement in the Lord. Now notice, agree in the Lord doesn't mean agreement necessarily to come to one person's position or something, but maybe it's just a matter of being willing not to have an opinion on something. We look at this second, this second part here in verses 4 through 6. What does he say? Rejoice. So he, he transitions from, I want, them to, I want to encourage them to agree in the Lord. And he transitions over and says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. 
Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So as God's servants, he's calling the Philippian church to check themselves, to stop and look and and pray and, and go to God. Is my attitude right? Is my conduct right? Is what I believe really focused on Jesus Christ, or is it focused on me and my, my, my opinion, my taste, my preference? He's saying, go and do a self-check here, right? So he calls him first to rejoice. Sometimes it feels like you know, at this part of an epistle, Paul kind of goes through a sundry list, like, okay, here's this and this and this and this. And I think I read through this passage many times, disconnecting two and three from verses four through six. I'm feeling like, okay, well, there's this argument, he addressed that. Okay, now back to this, you know, now for something completely different. But the reality is, he's going back to that argument and telling them, how do you help help resolve this? You first got to check yourself and go to God with it. He throws out that word, right? Rejoice. So when we're in the gospel, when we're truly rooted in the gospel, when we're reflecting on what Christ has done for us, his death on the cross for our sins, doesn't so much else seem little? When we rejoice in that, don't the little arguments of the day just kind of seem petty? When we go back and rejoice in our common salvation, do we have this wall of enmity between our brothers and sisters in Christ? Or do we recognize, hey, we're all going through this together? Right? Rejoicing, sometimes just the act of rejoicing can be an anecdote to some of these little things that bug us. And he he calls us to reasonableness. I think reasonableness feels like a fuzzy word, but I don't think it is, right? Reasonableness, you know, everybody can kind of point to their own logical way of thinking, right? And some people logically sit and think and say, hey, it's reasonable to vote this way or to have this belief or to have this kind of conduct or to treat our children this way or to treat our spouse that way. And another person can use logic and reason around as something a little different. I don't think Paul's talking about just the logical steps to get to a conclusion, but he's talking about conduct, right? And these times when there may not be a right or wrong answer, we all think and reason differently, and that's just not, not what he's getting at. He's instead stopping and saying, let your conduct be reasonable. Let your thoughts and your belief be reasonable. So when people are being reasonable, how do they, how do they conduct themselves? Right? First, they're going to concern themselves with the bigger picture. They're going to think clearly about a situation. They're going to calm down a situation. Right? They're going to exercise patience. They're going to measure their words before speaking. And that's convicting. Because I recognize how often I'm unreasonable in what I do, right? When I snap at my kids, when I snap at my wife, when I, you know, get frustrated and and snap at someone at work. I think we all go through times when we're unreasonable, right? And, And when we recalibrate back to the Lord, he shows us how to reason. And Paul puts this against the word anxious, right? So if reasonable people think about the big picture and they stop and measure themselves and they think about their words and they have patience, What's the opposite? What do anxious people do? He says, do not be anxious about anything. But anxious people act in the moment. They try to take control of a situation. 
right? They live in fear and worry. They worry about what others think, often go to gossip and slander. They create factions. They trust in their own effort, right? Instead of leaning on the Lord and knowing His sovereignty, they trust in themselves. Again, they're putting themselves up in Jesus's place at the top of that pyramid there. And rather than belief and conduct following Jesus, their belief and conduct follows their opinion. And we all get anxious at times. There are times when God calms us down and the Holy Spirit works in us and helps us be reasonable. And there's times when our anxiety takes over. But our anxieties are to be taken in prayer and supplication to the Lord, right? Our request to be made known to God. That's the most reasonable thing we can do. In a situation when God has chosen not to give us a clear cut, do this, don't do that. All we can do to be reasonable is to take it to the Lord and to understand our own hearts and our own selfishness and our own desires. And when we take our worries to God, we learn how to let it go, and we understand that He is sovereign. And it's interesting the way He ends this section here. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Guard them from whom? Guarding our hearts and minds from ourselves, our sinful nature, right? We think of guarding and it's like, I mean, how much am I my own worst enemy when I get frustrated? When I'm resting in the promises of God, God is guarding me from myself because I'm putting my trust in God, the triune God who is bigger than me, who knows far more than me, who has all control over all situations. The Holy Spirit comes and slows us down in times of strife and struggle and would help us keep our tongue, hold our patience, endure difficult people, because we can rest in the God who has all of it right in His hands. And our guarded minds won't give in to that conceit, that pridefulness to be understood, to be right, to impose my desires upon other people. I need the triune God to guard my heart and my mind from me in my sinful nature. So when we have a disagreement and we go and we recalibrate back on this, when we take our prayers and our anxieties to the Lord and let our requests be made known to God, we'll have peace. Right? We can rest in that peace. And a lot of times we think by getting our way, we'll have peace. And instead, we need to rest in Christ. And he's telling the Philippian church, whatever this disagreement is, you know, rest in Christ and come together around the gospel and understand that rather than trying to make your efforts be known and your opinions be known and to win a little argument. Then he stops and turns around again here and he says, you know, how to recalibrate ourselves on what is right. So verses 7 through 9, he says, finally, brothers, Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So God's servants need to be recalibrated back on Christ. Paul's calling the Philippians to recalibrate their affection on Jesus. So in the midst of disagreement, 
He's telling them, look outside yourself and look at the Lord and what his calling is. And apart from the triune God, we're not going to find anything else that's true or honorable or just or pure or lovely or commendable or excellent or worthy of praise. The times we feel like we see these things in, in say, you know, moral philosophies or political economy and things like that, it's only because they're in some way, shape, or form reflecting God's truth, because God is truth. And because we are a fashion in the image of God, and because we all do have a law written on our heart, there are times that we may not give God the glory, but we still might manifest some of his truth in some way, shape, or form by reflecting it. There are non-Christian people who still tell the truth sometimes, right? There are non-Christian people who still do good works for their neighbor and do these things that we're called to do, even when they're not giving God the glory. But the truth itself is fully defined by the triune God in his scripture. That's why when we go back and we want to recalibrate on what's true and honorable and just, if we're striving for anything short of God's word and prayer and contemplation and movement of the Spirit— We're trusting in something that's a mere reflection of truth that might have some grain of truth within it. We want to go back to God's word and we want to go back to our Lord in prayer first and foremost to be recalibrated. So the Philippians, just like us, they have many, many sources of truth they could try to lean on of what they would think was truth. They had all the Greek philosophies, you know, they had Eastern mysticism, they had their opinions and Greek mythology and all these different kinds of uh, folk tales and stories But Paul's calling them to something else, truth in Christ alone. John 1.17 says, grace and truth came through Christ Jesus. There is no other truth. So here in verse 9, back to the graphic that we had up before. In verse 9, Paul's calling these Philippians to follow his model of belief in Christ, which leads to peace. When we think back through the earlier chapters of the book, in Philippians 1.9, he said, It's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Harkens back in chapter 1 as well, uh, where he talks about being in prison and having others pre- preach Christ in spite of him. Yet he's sitting there in jail and he takes joy that the gospel's still going out. Even if it's going out through people he doesn't like or disagrees with or people who've slandered him, Instead, he sees this bigger mission, the calling of the Great Commission, right? And he's, he's rejoicing in the fact that it's going forward, putting himself aside completely. Now, what better example do we have apart from Jesus himself? Came down from heaven and became a man and took on human flesh and lived a perfect life and died sinless, yet taking on our sin. He had no sin of his own. It was entirely his that he took on the cross. He poured himself out completely, body and blood broken. Paul's call to the Philippians to follow him, recalibrating on Christ. You know, he talked about his zeal for the law, his resume, and all those things that never could save him. But he's looked upon Jesus who took his sin and saved him. So the question becomes, what do we do with this? What do we do with this passage in our day? Do we fill our minds with conceit? Do we fill our minds with scripture and prayer? I think uh, in our lives, right, in, in our workplaces, families, wherever, right, strife is constant, right? There's always some people in conflict in some ways. And we've got to navigate these kinds of things in our workplaces, in our families, our neighborhoods, 
you know, there's spiritual differences, there's political differences, there's cultural beliefs. And we live in an age where people want to define their own truth, right? It's the ultimate in conceit. I have so much pride in myself that I'm going to define myself. And I expect all of you to know and understand and follow my definition of truth for me, right? And you can hear this on, on talk shows and whatever, where they say, well, you, you speak your truth. You speak your truth, right? We get to all make it up within our culture. If that's not conceit, I don't know what is. Paul's saying for each and every one of us, we don't really have that option, right? When we're called and we're trusting in Christ, we have to realign back to Christ. That's our calling, and that's the only source of truth. Now, Paul's not saying we should value peace over the clear instruction of the Lord, right? When there are theological issues, when there are cultural issues and stuff that the Bible has spoken clearly on, when there are moral beliefs that the Bible has spoken clearly on, we take that stance, but when you get down to some of those like level three triage kind of things where we may disagree on, on you know, what color to put in a nursery, we might disagree on, um, you know, conduct of parenting and things like that with our friends, you know, there's a point we step back and we say, you know what, this is not an eternal thing unless we see clearly in scripture where God has, has laid it out. And we want to be very gentle and careful. A lot of compromise happens when people want peace but jettison the truth to put the cart before the horse. If we want peace apart from God's truth, we're not going to find it. We want to address these issues that, uh, of, that are clear in a, in a loving manner, and we want to take these ones that are not uh, a theological and moral and, and deal with them in a loving manner as well. Paul's telling us to have peace. And I want you to notice something. He says to take it to God, right? There's nowhere in here where he says, when you have this disagreement, go get a bunch of people together and, and work it out. Right? He says, take it to God and deal with your own soul, right? You don't have to go convince everyone that you're right. You don't have to go and convince everyone that your opinion is the right one or that a decision should have been made differently. Never once here does he say, go try to organize this with your friends in some way, right? He's saying, come back to God and recognize in the eternal scheme of things, right, that, that a lot of these things don't matter. Even, like, you know, we, we, we get to celebrate an anniversary today of five years together. And, and as we were talking about that earlier, as Ryan was sharing that, and I thought, you know, we, we celebrate five years as a congregation, but it was planned from eternity before, and it's planned from now to eternity in the future, right? This is this one little part of all of eternity of us being together. And when we stop and we can step back and, and, and take God's view of this as much as we can humanly do so, and we recognize that, you know, over the course of years and years, lifetimes, and even eternity, a lot of what we argue and bicker about, get frustrated with, really just doesn't matter. And when we feel it does, and we go to God, right, and we follow verse 6, and we take everything by prayer and supplication, God's going to work our minds. He's going to help us take that eternal view. In verses 8 and 9, when we can turn to God's scriptural promises, the arguments aren't necessary because God's got it. He can handle it. And we can pray all day to Him. We can pray all day, and we can take those to Him, and He has broad shoulders to take all this on. And it doesn't cost us fellowship with our brothers and sisters the way gossip or slander would. 
It doesn't destroy a reputation when we're supposed to be shining lights for the gospel. If we're bickering about tiny things, destroy our reputation and snuff that light out to where the rest of the world doesn't even want to be a part of church. We can go to God all day and he'll, he'll take those prayers. It's like a relief valve God has designed here that we can go to him and trust him and that the Holy Spirit works on us that we don't uh, you know, get divisive and we don't slander and we don't turn to passive aggressive comments. It's the exact opposite of what our culture calls us to, right? We're in a culture that rewards snark. It rewards sarcasm. It rewards passive aggressiveness, backbiting, name-calling, shoving something in the face of others. We have a media complex that is geared around just you know, driving rage, driving angst, driving division. And Paul doesn't tell us, be witty and manipulative and clever and win that kind, of, that kind of argument. Instead, he's saying, be reasonable. So here we are as a church that, God, that, that Paul has called us to be light. Being reasonable is actually now countercultural, right? And we have the benefit of being called to be countercultural by being reasonable. We think about that, right? When we're told, fight for your rights, fight for this, fight for that, stand on this, when we're standing on theology, when we're standing on morality, when we're standing on what God is clear on, that is exactly our calling. When it comes to the little things, that's not our calling to fight. Our calling is to be reasonable. And yet again, Christianity becomes countercultural. And that's something that you and I get to rejoice in. Following God of all eternity from, be- from beginning to end, where there is no beginning and end, I guess, but, but from what our minds can conceive as beginning and end, right? We are part of something bigger than the petty arguments that drive us day to day. I think we can take joy in being countercultural and stepping back out of the mire of the world that just wants to argue and complain and divide and draw lines that are not biblical. Brothers and sisters, I think that uh, we can stand as lights By the power of the Holy Spirit, we can stand as those lights in the crooked and twisted generation that Paul mentioned back in in chapter 2. Now, if we're examining our hearts and we're recalibrating on Jesus, we're going to stand apart. We're going to stand against a culture. We're going to stand against our sinful nature. Our hearts and minds will be guarded against ourselves. I think we can serve our Lord best by knowing um, exactly how to recalibrate on Christ. When we think of, of this right here, if, if you do take notes, this is something great that I, I took notes on back when Jason preached it, and I'm kind of reflecting back on it, and I'm probably going to post it there in my office just to kind of as a reminder of how to recalibrate. Brothers and sisters, we, we want to be reasonable and not anxious. So I'm going to call you, uh, I'm going to go ahead and pray, and uh, we'll do a benediction. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, that you have called us as brothers and sisters in Christ. And God, as you have brought us together, Lord, there's sometimes going to be friction. There's going to be difference in taste. There's going to be difference in, in uh, our style and the way we do things and the way we see things. But Lord, we pray that you give us, Lord, eyes and ears to hear and see your truth, recalibrate upon it. And Lord, for us to dwell upon what is noble and honorable and truthful. 
And God, that the petty gripes and arguments of the world, Lord, can fall away. And we can understand things through a more eternal lens and through a gospel lens. We can recognize the biggest need we have is not to be right. It's not to be understood. It's not to be um, a winner. But instead, Lord, for us to recalibrate upon our sinfulness and the salvation we have in our Lord Jesus Christ. And to share that with others is far more important than a divisiveness in our hearts. God, give us grace and mercy as we, um, as we go about this week, Lord. Help us to reflect upon this gospel that you've given us. And God, I pray for um, this food, Lord, that we're going to have here. God, we pray that you bless it to our bodies. God, that you give us a, a good time of fellowship here after church. And Lord, just help our hearts and minds to be joyful and to rejoice in you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.